welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, May 15th, um, 2019. It's also our Chad Pulmonary Mini Fellowship Series um, wrap-up session for 2018-2019. So I see a lot of small uh, uh, videos in the camera on the screen up there, our friends in Manchester, Nashua, Concord, and elsewhere. So um, for those who aren't down in the southern part of the state, uh, who had snow on their cars yesterday morning? Yeah, so welcome to May, of course. Um, when we do the mini fellowship series, uh, it's a reminder that we um, are reviewing and updating important and common conditions that we encounter in pediatric practice, particularly general pediatrics, uh, to establish some baseline knowledge and even some expectations, perhaps, on standards of care. Uh, and we will next year, um, I don't know what our series will be next year, but that's quite all right. We'll, we'll be picking that over the course of the summer. For those uh, here in Lebanon, we have some uh, exciting dates coming up in the next few weeks. So next Wednesday, right after Grand Rounds, 9 a.m., we will do our annual faculty photo. So please... Uh, Please come, and um, and we will announce where to, to um, walk to right after the session. That evening also, next Wednesday evening, I think in Auditorium H, uh, Dean Compton will be presenting his annual State of the Medical School Address, and I uh, hope you can attend that. And we have graduation-related events coming up in June that I put on the screen. So I want to make sure that our fellowship director, Dr. Gwill, can come on up and introduce our our, our Grand Rounds and Fellowship Speaker, who is joining us from Georgia this morning. Thank you. So I'm pleased to introduce um, Dr. Katie Mackey, who is a colleague of mine from my former position in Augusta. Um, Katie is a graduate of Duke University and of the Medical College of Georgia, which has undergone a number of different names and is currently known as Augusta University, or the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. Um, Katie did her pediatric residency, chief residency, uh, and, and all postgraduate training in Augusta and has had her career there. She is uh, trained in pediatric sleep medicine, thus her invitation here today to talk to us about sleep medicine. She is a, a multi-talented woman who also is the uh, director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center, and her research uh, has been with a uh, uh, exercise physiologist and pulmonary physiologist in the area of of uh, CF uh, respiratory physiology, and, and her publications are in that area. But uh, it's because of her expertise in pediatric sleep medicine that we invited her to join us this morning to talk about, uh, to close out our fellowship, our mini fellowship program. Katie? Morning. Is that good? Nope. Give that a try. Testing? Yeah. Better? Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for inviting me here today, especially Dr. Gwill. Without Dr. Gwill, I would definitely not be where I am today. She set me on this pathway, so I really appreciate the chance to visit her and you guys. And um, just want to say in Augusta, it's in the 90s, so we were shocked when we got up here and got off the plane and people were talking about snow. Um, um, and I also want to thank you for announcing the date because it reminded me that today's my wedding anniversary. So. 
really glad you told me that before I talk to my husband anymore. <laughs> so this morning we're going to talk about pediatric sleep. This is going to be a, an overview of um, some of the main areas of sleep medicine that might be useful to anybody in general peds or pulmonology or any other areas that uh, deals with sleep problems. Um, I don't have any disclosures except for that uh, since I had these kids, I realized how hard it is to get them to sleep. It's actually much harder in real life than it is in, in the books. Uh, but they do sleep sometimes, so I took that picture to prove it. Um, so our objectives today are just to go over the basics of pediatric sleep. We're going to talk a good bit about sleep apnea, um, a little bit about insomnia. We'll talk more about insomnia at the noon conference today. Um, talk some about the parasomnias and then hypersomnia. So pretty much all the somnias, and I hope it doesn't put you guys to sleep. Um, so I think this is true. Um, sleep basics. It's really interesting um, that by the age of two, most children have actually spent more time asleep than they have awake. When you think about how busy they are awake, you know they need all that sleep. Um, it's really the primary activity of the brain during their early development. So that's um, how important it is that we pay attention to sleep so that we can make sure um, all the kids' brains are developing like they're supposed to. But um, even though there's been an explosion of knowledge about sleep in the past probably 50 or 60 years, the basic function is still kind of a mystery, which makes it a really neat field to work in. Um, we all know there are several different stages of sleep, um, but you might not know exactly what they're for. The slow-wave sleep or deep sleep that we talk about is really the restorative stage of sleep, and that's also where there's a lot of hormones that regulate somatic growth. So um, if your sleep is off, um, you can get have problems with obesity. You can have problems with failure to thrive. Uh, it really has a lot to do with how kids are growing. Uh, then you have your REM sleep, which is important for consolidating memory and for growing uh, and developing the CNS. So obviously both stages are really important uh, for kids to learn properly. And of course, we all know that chronic sleep loss really impacts our daytime function and can cause us to be too sleepy and tired during the day, um, which can be different in kids versus adults. So how exactly does sleep maintain health? Well, we're not too sure yet, but there are some theories. Um, there have been a few recent papers in science and a couple different publications that point um, in a few different directions. So it seems that there's something to do with diurnal clearance of toxic metabolites that can affect the CNS. Um, which is interesting. And then we also know that telomere length seems to be much shorter in kids that chronically don't get enough sleep. And telomere length is a proxy for aging, so you know if it's shorter, that's not so good. Um, and then the circadian clock is really, really, really important for regulating sleep patterns, we know, but also it regulates feeding, hormone release, blood pressure, body temperature, all sorts of basic functions um, that we need to be working properly. Um, and I think this quote is really apt. If sleep does not serve an absolutely vital function, then it's the biggest mistake the evolutionary process has ever made. Because we certainly spend a lot of time doing it. Um, we're not sure what we're doing while we're sleeping, but it's something important. Um, and this little schematic kind of shows you all of the different things that are going on throughout the circadian clock that are regulated by the circadian clock. So it's um, some stuff that has to do with even how you're functioning during the day. It's not just sleep. Um, our sleep really changes from childhood through adulthood. So, you know, newborns start out sleeping a ton, and then obviously as you get older, there's a decline in the average 24-hour sleep duration. Uh, there's a decrease in proportion of REM sleep from birth, and then through childhood and again to adulthood. There's also a decrease in the proportion of slow-wave sleep, so you get more stage one and two as you get older. 
And then as kids become closer to adolescence, they shift naturally to having a later bedtime and a later uh, sleep onset time. So they like to stay up late and they like to sleep late. Um, and that's not always great for school or regular life. Um, but so your teenagers, when they want to stay up really late and they want to sleep really late, they can just blame it on biology um, and not necessarily on all their iPads and things that they're using. There's also um, sleep patterns become less regular in general as they get from middle childhood into the teenage years. The National Sleep Foundation updated their guidelines on the recommended amount of sleep that we should all be getting a couple years ago. Um, and this slide shows on the, on, let's see what I can do the pointer, maybe? So newborns need between 14 and 17 hours a day. Some get as many as 19, some get as few as 11. Sorry for all those people. Um, and then as you get older, you know, in the infant period, you need 12 to 15 hours throughout the night and the day, including naps. Um, and then toddlers, 11 to 14. Preschoolers really still need 10 to 13 hours, maybe, maybe nine on the really short end. Some actually need more to function normally. And then school-age kids need between 9 and 11. And teenagers really need between 8 and 10. Um, and adults are supposed to get between 7 and 9. I don't know how many of us actually accomplish that, especially not those of us that are trying to get our kids to sleep. Um, but those are the recommendations. Um, I don't know about a lot of you guys, but um, a lot of my patients really are not getting anywhere close to this. And it definitely affects how their daily lives go. So that's a little bit about the basics of sleep. We're going to move on to talking about sleep apnea. You might could guess between the, those giant golf ball-sized tonsils in the back there. Um, so sleep apnea in children is, uh, is a big deal. Um, it's characterized by repeated episodes of prolonged upper airway obstruction during sleep, and that's despite continued or increased respiratory effort. Um, that this causes either complete or partial cessation of airflow, and obviously it disrupts sleep. Adults have a lot more true apneas where they're not getting any airflow. Kids tend to have more hypopneas where they're getting partial airflow but not complete airflow. Either way, it still disrupts your sleep and it's kind of like being poked all night long or like the princess in the pea, and the princess in the pea that sleeps on all those mattresses with the pea that just wakes her up all night long. And that really causes disruption to, um, to your system. It can cause autonomic problems. It can cause uh, heart problems. Um, issues with heart rate variability. Uh, it can definitely impact learning, attention during the day, behavior during the day. Uh, and it's pretty common. We think at least 1% to 6% of children have sleep apnea. That's probably a, a significant underestimate because it's based on polysomnography data, and most kids, of course, don't have sleep studies. So it's probably a lot more. Uh, it's most prevalent in the two to eight-year-old age group because that's the chief uh, age of tonsil hypertrophy, tonsil and adenoid hypertrophy. After age eight, those tend to shrink naturally, so sleep apnea gets less common. Um, of course, with the obesity epidemic, it's pretty common across all the age groups now. And there's several different causes. It can be caused either by decreased upper airway patency, increased let's just say increased upper airway collapsibility um, or decreased drive to breathe or some combination of all three of those. 
So upper airway problems that cause sleep apnea, anything basically that causes your airway to be more narrow during sleep. So big tonsils and adenoids, or even, they don't even have to be big. It could just be big in relation to the size of the child's airway. Uh, so some kids might have one plus tonsils, but they're really causing some obstruction because the rest of the airway is pretty narrow for some reason. And some kids have giant four plus tonsils that cause obstruction. Allergies, so anything that causes the nose to be swollen is going to cause obstruction. Craniofacial syndromes that cause a different shaped um, facial structure. Reflux um, causes um, a reactive edema in the airway that can cause some obstruction. There's any other um, anatomical problem in the nose like septal deviation and then as we mentioned obesity uh, can also cause upper airway obstruction. And then there's some things that cause reduced muscle tone or reduced central drive to breathe. And those are your neuromuscular diseases, muscular dystrophies, CP, um, other neurologically impaired children that have low tone. Um, hypothyroidism can do it. Arnold Chiari malformation causes an increased risk. Uh, kids with myelomeningocele and any sort of brainstem injury or mass that's, that's impacting the respiratory centers can cause problems. Some specific medical conditions come with an increased risk for sleep apnea. So anytime you're seeing a kid with Down syndrome, obviously, that's a huge issue. Prader-Willi, achondroplasia, sickle cell, which we see a lot where I live, the craniofacial syndromes, um, and all those hunters, hurlers, and gauchets, and those types of things. Um, of course, tobacco smoke exposure is bad for everything. It's always the right answer on the boards. Um, and then there is some family history of sleep apnea. There is some genetic component as well. So how do these kids present? They usually report nightly snoring, um, usually pretty loud. Some parents will say, sounds like a bear. I can hear him down the hall. Um, or we stayed in a hotel and it was really, really loud. Um, those sorts of things. Lots of kids snore when they're tired or when they have a cold. But if it's nightly um, and it's pretty loud, then that should give you a clue that they may have sleep apnea. Many parents will notice them pause in their breathing or wake up with a gasp or a choke um, or a cough and will report that. Lots of parents report restless sleep. You know, I don't know if that's really a true indicator of sleep apnea because it seems like all kids have restless sleep to me, but maybe that's just mine. Um, some report an abnormal sleep position. They'll try to sleep on pillows or sleep with their neck hyperextended so they can breathe better. Had one kid that would only sleep sitting up and crouched over like that until we got on CPAP and his mom was like, oh, he can breathe, he sleeps lying down. She, she didn't want to do CPAP for the longest time and then she just came back and said, it's a miracle, he sleeps lying down now. Great, that's <laughs> <laughs> what I've been saying. <laughs> so they also often will breathe through their mouths, especially if their nose is really obstructed. Um, bedwetting, it tends to be more frequent in kids that are having trouble with sleep apnea. Um, also, increased seizure frequency if they have those, an increased risk of sleepwalking and sleep tears, um, which may happen anyway, but are more common with any sleep disruption. So sleep apnea counts as a sleep disruption. In the day, they'll present with mouth breathing, kind of a hyponasal speech, adenoidal kind of thing going on, chronic nasal congestion. Some will wake with a headache if they've got really bad sleep apnea. Some will report sleepiness during the day, falling asleep in school, taking a nap after school. Some have the opposite and are, uh, are wired and act like they have ADHD. Um, some are just moody, cranky, irritable, and often there's a decline in school performance. 
So how do we evaluate it? Well, it's really important to take a good sleep history, um, and you should be screening, you know, in general peds, we should be screening for sleep symptoms at all the well visits. Um, and if you get a positive, something positive in your screening, then you should go on to take a more detailed sleep history and find out what is their, you know, what are they really doing at home. Uh, medical history is important, of course, so anything that could impact the sleep, like allergies, asthma, reflux, um, recurrent tonsillitis, those kinds of things. And then how are they doing developmentally? How are they doing in school? Um, is the rest of the family affected by sleep disorders? Um, and how are they behaving? Or is this a kid you're worried about ADHD? Are they acting out a lot? Um, those can be clues to ask a little bit more about sleep. And then on your physical exam, how are they growing? Are they obese or are they failure to thrive? Um, we had one kid that had severe failure to thrive and nobody knew what it was until he, he fell asleep in clinic and he um, was clearly obstructing and desatting to the 40s. So after that, he got his tonsils out, and he grew a lot better. So don't forget, it could be failure to thrive. It's not just the obese kids that have sleep apnea. Um, this is a, a, a picture that shows the Malampati scoring and then the tonsil scale. It's from Peds in Review. So the top row shows, you know, if you open your mouth, how much you can see in the back, and if you can only see this, then that's definitely a big risk factor for sleep apnea. If you really can't see any of the tonsils, then they don't have much room back there. And then this is the bottom, so no tonsils all the way from one, two, three, and four plus are kissing tonsils. So the again, the severity of sleep apnea doesn't really depend on the size of the tonsils. You can have, you can actually have, oh, oh that's not good. <laughs> you can actually have these kissing tonsils and you can have no sleep apnea, and you can have no tonsils, and you can have pretty bad sleep apnea. But, you know, if you see giant tonsils, you probably want to ask about snoring and sleep symptoms. So how do we, <laughs> how do we evaluate a clinic? This is pretty much what it, what it looks like when they get hooked up to the, uh, the sleep thing and got the camera looking at you. I don't know. I personally hope I don't have to have a sleep study, but <laughs> I tell all the kids they're not too bad. There's no needles, so that's a big one. Um, it's great to use a screening questionnaire in clinic if you can. If you have them fill out any paperwork when they come in anyway, you can add in a BEARS questionnaire, and that will give you a clue if they're having any sleep issues. The diagnosis of sleep apnea really depends on the sleep study in kids. In adults, they're going to home sleep tests a lot. That's not so great in kids because uh, a couple reasons. One, you can't get CO2 uh, levels, but also... It's really hard to get good data, even from the adults. They tend to hook up the equipment wrong or rip it off during sleep or forget, you know, the battery goes dead with the home sleep test. So um, I think it would be even harder for kids who are wiggly and um, you know, it's hard for parents to do that sort of thing at home. So the gold standard is still an in-lab sleep study for kids. Um, there are some other studies that we do sometimes if, we're, if they're indicated. So if you're worried about maybe adenoid hypertrophy, you can look at a lateral neck film. Um, you may end up getting EKG or echo if you're worried about poor pulmonale um, or pulmonary hypertension. Um, maybe if you have a craniofacial problem, you might be looking at CT, MRI, that kind of thing. And then sleep endoscopy is really useful. Your ENTs can help with that. Um, to, especially for kids that have residual sleep apnea after they've had their initial TNA, and that will help look for where the level of obstruction is. So they kind of put them to sleep gently and then put a scope down and see what level the obstruction is occurring at and whether there's something that they can do surgically. So 
Why order a sleep study? Well, because um, lots of ENTs want to know why should we do that? We can just take out the tonsils. We know they're big. Um, it really helps to distinguish OSA from primary snoring. Like I mentioned, um, you can't really tell just by looking at the tonsils if they have sleep apnea or not. And you don't want the kid to undergo a TNA if they really don't need one. And then conversely, if they have severe sleep apnea, you really want to know before you put them to sleep um, because those kids are at higher risk for um, perioperative complications. And it also gives you a baseline measure for kids who may go on to have residual sleep apnea. You can tell how bad were they to start and then how much better did they get with the surgery. Um, so we really need an overnight study um, in, a, in a sleep lab that's accredited. What do you get? Well, you get sleep staging, so that's EEG. You get cardiovascular parameters. You get body movements, airflow, respiratory efforts, uh, O2 sat, CO2, and then pick up on the snoring with a microphone. And all of that, the computer records and the sleep tech score every 30 seconds of the child's sleep, um, which is pretty intensive. And then uh, based on that scoring, the, the computer will spit out uh, some numbers that we then have to make sure they make sense. In the old days, this was all done on paper with paper and pen, and I just don't even know how they did that. But um, now the computers will generate an apnea hypopnea index and, and tell us their other important stuff. This is not our lab, but this is a cute kid, and this is basically what it looks like when they get hooked up at night. Um, and it's really amazing. Most of the kids do very well. Our techs do a lot of peed sleep studies, and they make it fun. And um, I think the kids probably do better than the adults. So this is a picture of what it looks like um, when we get the tracing back. Um, so the top is the limited EEG that you get. Um, you get some eye movements as well. And then this is a nasal airflow channel. And then these are the, the chest and the belly movements and then the sats. And you can see here in the nice red that they put it in, this is where the airflow is not coming through, how that looks flat. But they're still trying to breathe right there. So that shows you that they're having problems with, with obstruction. Um, when I first started reading those, I thought I would never figure out what they meant. And I actually went to see my eye doctor like shortly thereafter because I was like, it seems blurry. <laughs> Everything got better um, with practice. So how do we diagnose sleep apnea? Um, in kids, the, the parameters are way different from adults. So for kids, an apnea hypopnea index of less than one, which means less than one event per hour. So they take all the apneas and hypopneas and add them up and then divide it by the number of hours the child was asleep to get that number. And if they have less than one pause per hour, that's considered normal. If they have between one and five pauses per hour, that's considered mild sleep apnea. Five to 10 is moderate and greater than 10 is severe for kids. For adults, it's not severe until you get greater than 30. Uh, it really doesn't even count as sleep apnea until you get to five to 15, depending on whether you have symptoms. So we have different standards. Um, and then if your CO2 is elevated for more than a quarter of the sleep time, that's considered hypoventilation. How do we manage sleep apnea? So adenotoxelectomy is usually the first-line treatment in kids. Um, there was a trial, a big trial a few years ago called the CHAT trial or the Childhood Adenotoxelectomy trial that looked at kids with mild sleep apnea. And it showed benefit um, in quality of life as well as in um, like executive function and learning um, with <clears throat> tonsillectomy, even for mild sleep apnea. It did show also that watchful waiting in the very mild sleep apnea can be appropriate as well. Um, but a adenotonsillectomy is your first line in general. Um, however, up to half will have some residual sleep apnea after tonsillectomy. Um, I think our ENTs quote a, a less, like a more like a 
80 to 90 percent cure rate, but um, what I've seen is up to 50 percent, and that depends on whether they have uh, other risk factors, so obesity, craniofacial facial abnormalities, um, things like that will make you predisposed to having residual sleep apnea. And um, also your adenoids can regrow, and that happens pretty often. So they may initially get better after their tonsils or adenoids come out, and then they may again start snoring and having apnea a few years later, and that may be due to adenoids coming back. So um, post-op complications are more common for kids with sleep apnea. Uh, have to pay special attention to the high-risk groups, which are the really young children, those that have baseline severe OSA before their surgery, which you would only know if you got the sleep study, a plug for the sleep study there, and then other medical conditions like Down syndrome, craniofacial syndromes, morbid obesity, those kids are at higher risk for having problems after their surgery. Uh, anybody that started out with severe sleep apnea and anybody that isn't totally cured after sleep after their surgery should have a repeat sleep study about six to eight weeks after. Um, you have to give at least six to eight weeks to allow the healing to occur, but um, after that you should reassess with a sleep study if they're not um, cured of their symptoms, just to see where you are. So um, there's some risk factors for recurrence. Again, obesity and then how fast you're gaining weight, African-American race, kids that have persistent upper abnorm airway abnormalities that weren't corrected, and then the other um, medical conditions like Down syndrome, those guys are at higher risk for recurrence. So what else can we do besides surgery? Well, what else can we do besides TNA anyway? Um, sometimes a turbinate reduction will help. Um, repair of other upper airway anatomical problems. Um, tongue debulking is a rough one that we try not to, the NTs try not to do that one, but uh, occasionally will do. UP3 is, again, not used as much in kids, but occasionally they will do in certain cases. Um, sometimes mandibular distraction, especially for kids with craniofacial issues or palate expansion, those can be options. Um, some kids do better after supraglottoplasty. Um, the hypoglossal nerve stimulation thing is investigational still. We're not, not, it's not really doing in practice yet. Um, and then, of course, the, the bottom line surgery would be tracheostomy if necessary. Um, Non-invasive things we can do, CPAP, BiPAP, um, weight management, you can get any cooperation there. Um, treatment of other comorbidities like allergies, reflux, asthma, avoiding sedating medications during sleep that are going to lower tone, uh, avoiding tobacco smoke exposure. Oral appliances can be useful for some people. It's harder in kids because their mouth is growing a lot and you would have to change the oral appliance a lot. And, um, most insurances don't like to do that, but if you know if you can get it paid for, it's an option, especially for older teenagers that mouth, their mouth isn't going to change as much. Positional therapy is like a last ditch effort for kids that you really can't do anything else with. If you, um, everybody's mostly worse if they sleep on their back because gravity is pulling your your airway down and you lose tone, so it's easier for your airway to collapse. So if you can get them to sleep on their side or their stomach. Um, some people will actually take a T-shirt and sew a ping-pong ball like in the pocket of the T-shirt and put it on backwards so the kid can't lay on their back. If you know, desperate times, call for desperate measures. <laughs> then there is also supplemental oxygen therapy, which we can use as a bridge, either a bridge to surgery or for kids that really um, we can't do anything else for or won't tolerate anything else. So that's, uh, that's the OSA section, and then we're going we're gonna to move on to all of the rest. This is... Super true. I never knew this before I had kids, and now 
Never knew this before I had the second kid. And now their room definitely looks like that all the time. So kids do a lot of weird things during the night, and parents love to tell you about it. And um, some of those things are sleepwalking, night terrors, and then confusional arousals. These are mostly uh, occur in non-REM sleep. They're episodic. They usually happen within the first few hours of going to sleep. That's when you get a lot of your first big block of non-REM sleep. And in all of these, the child will appear agitated, confused, disoriented. They mostly get more agitated if you try to wake them up, and they don't remember anything about it in the morning. There's often a positive family history of sleepwalking or one of the other um, parasomnias. And these things get worse and more frequent if the child is having insufficient sleep or their sleep is disrupted by something. Um, So illness, sleep apnea, bad sleep habits, um, going on a trip, any of those things will do it. Lots of kids sleepwalk at least once. About 70% will sleepwalk pretty often. It usually occurs in the early childhood years and um, kind of peaks in middle school and usually resolves by the teenage years. Um, Sleep terrors. You guys, I don't know if you have ever experienced one yourself. My husband actually still has these, and they're, they're terrifying um, for me, not for him. They're very terrifying for me. So in these, the child will, will be screaming, crying, flailing, kicking, um, appear to be really terrified, um, get worse when you try to calm them down. And um, it's kind of like sleepwalking. It usually outgrows, you usually outgrow it by teenage years or adulthood. These are very scary for the parents. The children don't know any, don't remember anything about it. Um, and then confusional arousals are when uh, often triggered if you just get woken up when you, when you really shouldn't have, you know, in the middle of the night or when your sleep cycle is kind of off. And the child can appear to be really confused, disoriented, super groggy. Uh, it can actually last up to an hour. Um, so risk factors for these, genetics often runs in the family, inadequate sleep we mentioned, uh, any disruptors, kind of talked about these already, some medications as well, and then caffeine, stress and anxiety will all make these happen more often. Um, evaluation of these, we don't usually do a sleep study uh, routinely unless we think that maybe there's some other underlying thing going on like sleep apnea that may be making the parasomnias happen more frequently, <laughs> or if they don't seem quite... Um, like the typical parasomnia, and we're worried that, that there may be seizures going on. That's in the differential diagnosis. It's really useful now that everybody has iPhones or, uh, you know, fancy phones, because often you can get the parents to record an episode and bring it in. Usually if you do a sleep study, the kid never has an episode during the sleep study. So if you can get the parent to record a video and bring it to the office and you can look at it, then it can help you figure out what it is. Um, Also, getting parents to keep a sleep diary of how often they're happening and what time of the night can help you figure that out as well. Uh, If they're happening throughout the night, if there's any sort of stereotypic movement, if they're having it with bedwetting, um, if there's any other question of seizures, you would have to be more concerned that there was a seizure involved. Um, So management is generally just education and reassurance, um, counseling about safety measures, so Um, For sleepwalking, making sure the floor is relatively clear, making sure the doors to the outside and the windows are locked and that the child can't get out of the house. Um, If they're on the second floor, making sure they're not going to fall down the stairs if they sleepwalk, Um, that kind of thing. Um, Some parents like to put a a noisemaker on the door. If they don't know when the child is sleepwalking, they'll put like a bell on the door so that they'll hear it and get woken up when the kid comes out of the room. or you could just wake up when your kid is sort of standing there right by you going, <laughs> which is creepy. Um, so, 
Um, and then we have to, to teach them how to respond during an event. So basically just guide the child back to bed gently. Don't try to wake them up. Don't make a big deal about it. And then the next day, don't make a big deal about it either because it stresses the kid out. They don't even know they're doing it mostly, so they, it won't be a big deal to them if the parent doesn't make it a big deal. Um, so hopefully a lot of parents, especially with sleep terrors, are come in pretty upset, and they've already told the kid that they're doing all these weird things during sleep. And we have to say, well, just don't talk about it. It's, it's not going to bother them if you don't let it bother you. If it's happening really often, and if it's happening about the same time of night each night, then the parents can try a technique called scheduled awakenings, which is basically going into the room about 15 or 20 minutes before the episode usually happens and gently jostling or turning the child. You don't want to wake them all the way up, but just sort of rustle them around so they move a little bit. And that seems to make the brain skip past that, um, that little part of the sleep sometimes. And if they can do that for a few weeks in a row, then sometimes the... Um, the parasomnia will subside. If it's really a problem or if they're going to camp or something like that, then we um, come to, sometimes can use medications to correct those for a short period of time, but don't really like to do that. So that's parasomnias. We're going to move on to hypersomnias. And this is definitely me. I always need five more minutes. Um, so daytime sleepiness in kids. How does it present? Um, sometimes with just being sleepy, like adults, but sometimes just with crankiness, other somatic complaints, tummy aches, headaches, um, not doing well in school, being really hyper, acting out, risk-taking, your classic ADHD, impulsive behavior, um, decline in school performance. And then some kids, especially teenagers, will be self-medicating, using lots of caffeine, other medications, monster energy drinks, all that stuff to try to keep themselves awake. Um, so there's a couple different causes of the excessive daytime sleepiness. Um, the biggest one is really inadequate sleep. Most people don't read that, that nice graph with the recommended sleep on it, and they're not getting the recommended amount of sleep. So that's the main cause of being too sleepy during the day. But some people do have uh, real pathology. So narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnia, which is a lot like narcolepsy but without some of the other features. Um, Klein-Levin syndrome is not very common, but is an interesting one for the boards, um, as well as uh, periodic hypersomnia. Um, obviously, psychiatric disorders and depression cause disruption in your sleep and can cause you to be tired and not feel well. And then if you're taking anything that, that makes you sleepy, we always have to think about that as well, especially in the teenagers. Um, I had one mom that brought her kid in for excessive day daytime sleepiness, and we did an MSLT, and we always do a drug screen before that, and it came back positive for marijuana. And I was, I felt terrible. I was like, oh, no, this kid is going to, we're going to have to tell his mom. And I, I sent her out of the room, and I said, you know, your screen came back positive for marijuana. Do you want me to help you tell your mom, or do you want to tell her? He's like, oh, she knows. I was like, well, why, why did you bring him in for being too sleepy? <laughs> so you know he was smoking pot. <laughs> so I don't know. I always have to remember that. That was a first for me. So for narcolepsy, um, uh, this is a chronic CNS disorder, and it causes disturbed regulation of your REM sleep and your wakefulness. Um, it's manifested usually by excessive daytime sleepiness, and then the other characteristic findings are cataplexy, which happens in some people but not others. That's like the if you've seen the fainting goats on the Internet where you lose muscle tone and um, you can go as so far as falling on the floor. It can be as subtle as eyelid drooping or jaw drooping, speech slurring. Um, many kids will just report that their knees feel weak. If they're laughing or telling a joke, they feel like they have to kind of 
catch themselves. Um, maybe they sit down whenever they tell a joke or start laughing um, to avoid falling. Um, hypnagogic hallucinations, which is when you're going to sleep and you think you see something that seems really real, but it's really not there. Usually it's something scary like bugs or an intruder. Um, that's a hypnagogic hallucination. And then sleep paralysis is when you wake up and you feel like you can't move a muscle. You're actually, not like you just can't get out of bed, but like you cannot move your muscles for 30 seconds or so. And that's caused by the um, REM sleep axis. Is not, your REM sleep is not quite shut off yet. That's what all those things are caused by. Um, it's just a, your REM and wake are kind of coinciding or overlapping there. It's caused by loss of cells that secrete hypocretin and orexin in the hypothalamus. And it can be, um, we don't always know why it happens. There's some theories that it may be related to viruses and different kind of epigenetic stuff. It can also re result, uh, be a secondary result of trauma or infection or metabolic disorders. Um, other common symptoms besides just the, you know, the dramatic stuff like cataplexy, um, disrupted and fragmented nighttime sleep. You would think people with narcolepsy would sleep great at night because they're sleepy, but actually it's, it's not fair. They really don't sleep well at night at all. They wake up a lot during the night. Um, and then they have daytime sleep attacks. They have problems, obviously. They may present like they're not paying attention in school. Often it's missed until later in adolescence or adulthood, and these kids are just labeled as lazy um, or just not good at school. They may be depressed. They may seem like they have a flat affect. A lot of them do maintain a flat affect because they found out when they laugh or they're funny or they're excited, they feel cataplexy coming on, so they're really flat. Um, and um, a lot of parents, after the kids get on medication, they say it's like having a different person in our house because they're awake and they're interactive and they're funny. Um, their whole real personality will come back out. Sometimes they have automatic behaviors, which is like when you're, maybe if you're writing a test at school when you fall asleep, but you keep writing and then you wake up and you wrote all this crazy stuff on the paper. Um, that's automatic behavior. Um, some actually will have migraines. Many are overweight. When they, a lot of them have a weight gain before they present, and it's unclear why that is. Maybe because they're sleeping a lot and they're not as active, or it's, it's probably all tangled up together in some of the sleep reg regulation of the hormones. And then sometimes they have other comorbid sleep disorders as well, like periodic limb movements or sleep apnea. So how do we diagnose it? You start with an overnight sleep study to make sure that there's no other underlying cause of the daytime sleepiness, like sleep apnea, and to make sure that they get enough sleep at, the, at night. And then the next day, if their overnight sleep study was pretty normal, you do an MSLT, which is a nap test, and they have four or five chances to take a nap during the day. Um, and you see how fast they fall asleep compared to other kids their age and whether they have REM sleep during those naps. And if they have REM sleep more than a couple times, that's diagnostic of narcolepsy if they also have a reduced sleep latency. Um, if there's something um, concerning for concerning neurologically, then you would probably go ahead and do some neuroimaging, but we don't routinely do that. You can do HLA testing. Some of this is genetic, but we don't routinely do that either. Um, likewise, you can get a spinal tap and look for the hypocretin orexin levels, but that's not popular, not at all. <laughs> don't usually do that. How do we manage it? Well, a lot of education to the patient, the family, and the school so they know what's going on with the kid. Sleep hygiene or good sleep habits is really important for everything in sleep, um, especially for kids with narcolepsy. They really need to follow a routine sleep schedule. Power napping is a good thing for people with narcolepsy. If they take a 15 to 30 minute power nap in the afternoon, that can 
really wake them up for the rest of the day. Um, have to counsel parents that these kids really need to be supervised closely when they're doing anything that could be dangerous if they have a cataplexy attack or a sleep attack. So if they're swimming, if they're riding a bike, um, if they're cooking, if there's a fire, anything like that, if they're riding horses, obviously if they're driving, um, you know, they have to be supervised. People with narcolepsy can go on to drive, especially for teenagers. We have to be really sure that they're well controlled and that they're taking their medicines correctly. Um, weight management is important for a lot of them. Exercise is just good for you in general and can help with your sleep schedule and then treating any other sleep disorders that they have. Um, most will require treatment with medication. Stimulant is the, is the thing that we use first. And for kids, usually we start with just the ADHD medicines. Um, and you can tell if somebody has narcolepsy because that's the parent that doesn't want their kid to be on Concerta. All the other ones really want their kids to be on Concerta, but for some reason, uh, our population of narcolepsy parents really wants to avoid that. I'm like, no, you need this. It's gonna make your kid better. Um, it's just ironic. Um, so we usually will start with the normal ADHD medicines. Um, and then if they're having a lot of cataplexy and it's not corrected with the stimulant, you can also actually use um, antidepressants like fluoxetine or venlafaxine. Those suppress uh, REM sleep, and so that'll suppress the cataplexy attacks that are happening during the day. The other medicine that, that is recently approved for kids is called sodium oxabate, and that's a big gun. That's the only medicine that treats all of the features of narcolepsy, but it's very tightly controlled because it's, it can be very sedating. It can be abused in the uh, wrong hands. It's basically like roofies, um, so you have to be really careful with that one, but it is a great treatment for those kids that need it. So um, we're going to switch over briefly to insomnia. And then I think we'll be wrapped up. So definitely don't give up on your dreams. Keep sleeping. Insomnia is very common in the pediatric population, and it's very frustrating to deal with, both for parents and for the kids and for the doctors. And it's, um, it's a subjective difficulty, either falling asleep or staying asleep during the night. Um, it's quite common, and it really increases the stress in the family, stress for the kids, um, increases their risk of um, comorbid psychologic disorders, um, and it's just, it's just no fun to deal with. Probably the two biggest types we see are behavioral insomnia and then psychophysiologic insomnia, which is just kind of your standard can't fall asleep at night. We're going to talk a little bit more about this at noon conference, but basically there's a couple different types of behavioral insomnia. One is the limit-setting type. Um, it's very common in preschoolers, and um, it's basically just where parents aren't really able or don't really know how to set appropriate limits around bedtime and enforce a, a normal bedtime routine. Um, these kids come out of the, they don't want to go to bed, they refuse to go to bed, they come out of the bed after you put them to bed, they, um, they do curtain calls, which is I need another drink of water, I need my teddy bear, I need another story, I need another hug, you know, they come out like 10 times, and it takes them a long time to fall asleep. And this is really a normal part of childhood, but it's just frustrating to deal with. These guys may also wake up a lot in the night and then the cycle can kind of repeat. They may be scared of something in their room or say they're scared of something in their room. And then they may have daytime issues because they're not sleeping well at night. Um, this is the differential kind of anything else that might be going on um, interfering with their sleep you have to think about. Um, how do we manage it? Pretty much um, just good parenting 101, do a set bedtime 
fade their bedtime back. If they're not falling asleep until midnight and you want them to fall asleep at 8, they're not going to just all of a sudden go to sleep at 8 if you give them a bedtime of 8. So you have to start with maybe 11.30 for a while and then 11 and then 10.30. You have to kind of write out a, a schedule for the parents. Look at their daytime sleep habits. Are they napping really late? Are they falling asleep after school when they can't go to sleep at bedtime because of that? Uh, that happens quite a bit. Um, some of the younger kids will do better if they have a transitional object like a stuffed animal or a blankie or um, that kind of thing. And then just try to make sure their circadian clock is on the right track. Wake them up in the morning. Don't let them sleep too late. Turn on the lights. Don't give them caffeine, especially after lunchtime. And kind of stuff. Um, for parents, you need to help them understand how to do this. Um, just do a lot of counseling. You need clear bedtime rules. You need to kind of ignore the, all of the stuff that's going on around bedtime. Don't get drawn in and engaged. Again, this is a lot easier to say than it is to do. Um, try to put the child to bed drowsy but awake so that they will learn to fall asleep on their own. And if they come out, just return them to their own room. Um, use positive reinforcement. Try not to use a lot of negative attention if they're not doing what you want because that's just attention as well. Um, and then stick to firm limits and warn parents that if they do implement this kind of a plan, usually the behavior is going to get worse for about a week before it gets better. Um, so it's not going to get better right away. And then there's one called the sleep onset association type, um, which is we all have sleep onset associations. So um, if you need the fan on, if you need a sound machine, if you need a particular blanket, if you need a stuffed animal, um, if you need your mom to rock you to sleep, those are all sleep onset associations, and um, all kids and babies learn to need these to fall asleep. Um, it's normal for everybody, especially kids, to wake up during the night. Some of them cry a lot more than they wake up. Some, some are good self-soothers automatically, and some aren't. Um, but if the night waking is something that's tied to something the child can't provide himself, like being rocked or being nursed or getting a bottle, um, something like that, then they're probably going to have more of this type of night waking and trouble going back to sleep. So I don't know if this, we'll skip past everything else, but this video is pretty funny if I can get it to play. This is a bad sleep onset association. about my kids. <laughs> um, so maintenance is still, is, you know, management is, is about the same as uh, the others. Good bedtime routine. Some of this they'll just grow out of um, if you can wait long enough. Um, not giving a bottle during the night after they don't need it is helpful. Some parents are up for doing cry it out. Some parents aren't. You have to find whatever's going to work for the family and be willing to support them through that. Um, some kids do well with a good morning light. I don't think you need one of those here since the sun comes up at 5.30, but it's basically a lamp on a timer that comes on in the child's room when they know, so that they know what time it's okay to come out of the room. And if they don't come out of the room before the light comes on, then they get something uh, positive reinforcement like a sticker or a prize. Um, so medications for insomnia um, are sometimes necessary. The aim should be to improve rather than totally get rid of the sleep problems. Uh, we want to start low and titrate up. 
um, and watch out for um, other meds and substances they may be using. We talk more about that at noon conference. So poor sleep habits are really the root of all evil and really the most common cause that we see for difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep. And um, risk factors in kids today, there's lots of academics, extracurricular demands going on. They don't finish with baseball until late at night or soccer or whatever. Um, uh, they have jobs. They have um, iPads. They have phones. Um, all, they play video games. They play Fortnite and all that sort of thing. So um, those really take up a lot of time that, that they probably should be sleeping. School starts early. And then lots of our parents just don't really know what to do as far as a good bedtime routine. They may not have had a, a adequate uh, role models themselves. So we've talked a lot about this, how the kids may present during the day, and then what we do to figure out what's going on. Really, the history is where it is. And then lots of time counseling and being willing to help them develop a schedule that will work for them. Um, and then if you're running up against something that seems like you can't handle it or it's unusual, then that's when you want to refer to a sleep specialist. Or um, if you think it's really related to some underlying psychological issue, then to a mental health provider. These are good sleep habits. Um, just as a reminder, keep a good sleep schedule. Um, don't Try not to differ with your sleep schedule too much on the weekday versus the weekends. Um, keep the bed, you know, do a good bedtime routine with brushing teeth and reading and music and sound machine and all that. Um, try to keep the, the bedroom just for sleeping and not for um, other, you know, playing and that sort of thing. If you can help it, eating, that kind of thing should not be in the bedroom. Uh, lots of sunlight, lots of exercise, a bedtime snack but not a heavy meal, no caffeine after lunch, um, avoid alcohol and smoking, and they will disrupt your sleep, and then over-the-counter sleep aids are not usually good either. Um, and that's it. So thank you. I'll thank Dr. Gwill especially. You can see that this is 1991, so not much has changed. <laughs> and then I'll take any questions. Oh gosh, um, that sounds like something that I need to brush up on before my uh, my sleep boards, my recertification in the fall. I know that's a thing, but I can't really give you much info on it. We don't really look at it. So. What do you mean by bedtime Okay, yeah, that's a that's a cool thing you can do. It's just like hall passes in school. So for your kids that come out of the room a lot to say um, they need another drink or they need another story, um, you don't want them to feel like they can't come out of the room at all if they're really scared. Um, so some parents find it useful to give them like one or two bedtime passes that they can decorate. And then if they feel like they really have to come out of the room, they can use one of those passes, go back to bed, and then um, not get, you know, they can still get their sticker the next morning if they don't use more than the one or two passes they got. So try to help them be successful with staying in the room mostly. But if you've got a kid that's coming out 10 times, you're probably not going to get them down to zero times, but you still want them to succeed and be able to earn their reward. Um, so you can let them come out once or twice, but not more than that. They really have to pee or whatever, get a drink. 
Thank you so much for coming. That was an excellent talk. I'm one of the general pediatricians, and I do a lot of adolescent medicine, um, and had to page the sleep medicine fellow when one of my patients wound up there for excessive daytime sleepiness and insomnia. And they went through the whole thing, and I'm like, you know he smokes pot three times a day. And the poor sleep medicine fellow, I think, got yelled at by the attending for not picking that up. So I'm wondering at what age you routinely do the drug screen in primary sleep studies. Well, for the MSLT, um, you really are supposed to do it in all of the kids before this, but we, we sometimes don't in the younger kids. But it seems like younger and younger these days. I definitely do it in teenagers. And if I have any suspicion that that things are off. Um, I wasn't too, too surprised by the one kid that did come back positive. Um, I think it's always better to do one. And, you know, it's probably better to err on the side of caution and do one because you can also pick up whether they happen to be on some sort of stimulant. Some of the kids come in and they we didn't know they were taking Ritalin or whatever, and that will also mess up the, the MSLT results. So um, it, it never hurts to do one. Um, What's the youngest you've been successful using non-invasive, like sleep It's really hard in the toddler age group. There are there are a lot of sleep centers out there I know that are doing um, CPAP, and even as young as two. And um, we don't really. We try to wait until they're at least four or five, if we can help it at all. Um, there are some places that will that will send home earlier, but it's it's. You know, the mask puts some pressure on the face, so it's going to, you have some concerns for their facial development with the wearing the mask. You have to watch out for that. Most of them don't, don't like it on their face and will rip it off, and the parent feels like they have to... Either the parent is in there all night putting it back on, or the kid's not really wearing it all night, and they're not really getting treated. So if it's bad enough that, you know, that they needed CPAP, it kind of makes you worried that they're not getting treated as well. Can you speak to... Um the use of melatonin a little bit, what you Yeah, it, I mean, it's very commonly used. There was a big pro-con debate a couple years ago at the sleep conference I went to because there's a lot of stuff in the popular literature about whether it influences hormones and metabolic axis and all of that stuff. Um, but it, it does tend to be the first-line thing that we go to when we're having a hard time and all of the, the good sleep habits and the bedtime routine and all that doesn't seem to be having any effect and the parents are frustrated and... The, the kid's probably frustrated, too, um, and it is probably the safest thing that we have, so I do recommend it quite a bit. Um, usually start with one milligram for the younger age groups, less than school age, and then um, up to three milligrams for a little bit older, and then five or six milligrams. I don't usually go above that. I think above that is probably doesn't usually do a lot of good. Some kids, not everyone gets the sleepy response from melatonin, so some kids, they, it just doesn't seem to do anything, and then I just tell them to stop it. Some kids, it really, really, really knocks them out. Like I can give my five-year-old a half of milligram um, if it's Christmas Eve, say. <laughs> I would maybe be known to do that, and he goes, he just like conks right out. So, you know, I think it's, it's worth a try. Um, I'll try not to use it forever, but some kids really, um, really seem to need it to help with their sleep. And that's the first thing I go to. And then if, if that's not doing the trick, then clonidine would usually be the next thing I would go to. So. I think there's more discussion about insomnia today at noon conference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Everyone is welcome to join in. Auditorium B. Auditorium B. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs>
Well, we apologize for the weather, but we thank you. <laughs> <laughs>